So, um, I want to, I really, really love Christmas, and I want to tell you why I really love Christmas. Um, I love Christmas because I, it reminds me of some, my childhood. And so every year, this is kind of what, how I, my year set up, all right? When it got darker sooner, that means Christmas was really close, Okay. I love that time change, you know, and, and when it's darker, and I and and then in, in Carrollton, Georgia, they start putting up the lights on the on the square and on the street lamps, and and it, it's kind of weird, I, you know. Last year, I called Crystal uh, and said, "Hey, they're putting the Christmas lights up," and she was like, "Okay, I'm calling the wrong person." So anyway, so, but I really liked that. And so then it would get, and then we would always go out and we would go one night to McDonald's and we'd eat. Um, and then after that, we would go and drive around Carrollton and look at lights. It's cheap entertainment. But it was, it's one of my favorite things that we did. And I love to this day looking at Christmas lights. I thought about Christmas and I thought about uh, the drive to my grandparents' house, the ones in Temple every Sunday before and on Christmas Eve to, my, to the Aikens. And, and that drive just always flooded with these memories I had of my cousins playing and, and all these things and Christmas presents and um, wrapping paper wars that my Uncle Larry would start. All, I mean, it's just, I just loved everything and I still love everything about Christmas. In fact, when we lived in Carrollton, I would usually get up the morning of Christmas Eve, and I would. I had a tradition. I would, because when we went to my grandma Aiken's house, we would go one way and come back another, which is why I do, I think it must be why I do that now. I don't know, but uh, maybe my dad just messed me up. So we would go, so we, we would go out, and I'd go in the back way, and I would always get up on Christmas Eve and drive past my grandmother's house. Now, she didn't live there. She didn't live there for a long time. And I would just slow down and drive through and just think about things. And then I would drive back the other way. Then I would go to Walmart when I started my tradition of buying videos uh, for my, my kids at Christmas. And I would go to Walmart and, and enjoy the show. And if you really want to have some Christmas fun, go to Walmart on Christmas Eve. It is quite the show. All right. And so, and that's kind of what I did. And I always, because here's the thing I always look forward to Christmas because Christmas is something worth looking forward to. Family gatherings, church services, Christmas parties, gatherings with friends, special services. I mean, Christmas, there's something about Christmas that's worth looking forward to, right? I look forward to, to di diving into a tradition that I have that I'll share with you at the end of the service. And, and in the month of December, I just I kind of have a, a way of reading the Bible, and I just read the same things over and over and over again. I just look forward to that. There's something about Christmas that, that drives us to look forward. And if you study the, the Gospels, if you study Matthew and Luke, and you know, with John, a little tad of John thrown in, we get the story of, of what the people had been looking forward to, what they had looked forward to for hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years had come to pass. There's something to look forward to. Then there's the other side of Christmas. 
it's the, it's, the, it's the Christmas. I remember the Christmas when we all knew that it would be my dad's last Christmas, like it was yesterday. And people go, well, that must have been a tough Christmas. I'm telling you, it's one of my fondest Christmas memories was that day with our family. Because for some people, that's what Christmas is. This is, you, this is, the, this is the last Christmas you're going to have with someone, you're, you're pretty sure. And that's tough. That's hard. First Christmas without somebody special is hard. Another Christmas, if you have a child who's in the service or a family member in the service, that's tough. By yourself at Christmas is tough. Feeling lost at Christmas is tough. Every you know the, we have the the manger scenes, the Christmas lights, the uh, the you know they're playing Christmas songs on the radio. They think they're just traditional Christmas songs. We know what they are. We're telling the story of Jesus. They don't get it. Doesn't matter. We get it right. And so Christmas is this mixture of something that people look forward to, and something honestly some people wish would just go away. Here's what I'm here to tell you. We should never get to the place where Christmas is something that we should want to be over in a hurry. Because here's the cool thing about Christmas. Regardless of what you're going through, Christmas is not about how we feel. Christmas is not about who is not here. Christmas is not about who's not going to be there. And those things matter to us. Christmas is about the arrival of Jesus in the world. That's what Christmas is about. It's the, it's the story of hope coming to the world, of grace coming to the world, of love coming to the world. It is the story that changed everybody's story. And so we have Matthew, we have uh, Luke, and we have a little bit of John, but we also have Isaiah. Um, John Sawyer, who is a theologian, um, refers to and wrote a book, refers to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. A lot of people refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. In fact, I would refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Because when you look at the book of Isaiah, I want you to consider this. There is only the book of Psalms is quoted more in the New Testament. In the book of Isaiah, these are the kind of things you'll find. The birth of Jesus, uh, the birth of John the Baptist, par some parables, the crucifixion. Now, now here's the cool, the cool thing about that. Not that crucifixion is cool, but... Isaiah talks about crucifixion before the Romans learned about crucifixion from the Egyptians. And Isaiah talks about crucifixion before the Egyptians knew what crucifixion was. Before the world really knew what that was all about, Isaiah was already talking about it. The teaching parables, I mean, final judgment. I mean, the return of Jesus, all these things, just like you can find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are found in the book of Isaiah. And the importance of Isaiah is that Isaiah was written at a really tough time. Isaiah was born about 800 years before Jesus arrived on the planet. And so, depending on which theologian you read and which book you read, it's anywhere from 700-ish years uh, to 750 to 600 and whatever and change years, Isaiah put these words long before Jesus showed up. Isaiah wrote at a time when people were really struggling. 
to remind the world that there was something coming worth looking forward to. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks in the book of Isaiah. We're really going to focus on one verse. So we're going to kind of set it all up today. And in Isaiah chapter 9, we see these words, beginning in verse 1. Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Remember, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in Israel. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be full of glory. So Isaiah's just saying, look, it's pretty bad. Get it. It's not always going to be bad. Something good's coming. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Verse 2, for those who live in the land of Deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as the people at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. That's the celebration. That's what he's saying, right? For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. Verse 5, the boots of the warriors and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for fire. It's a lot of words. So, in a really dark time in Israel's history, Isaiah said, here's the deal. Something good's coming. Something that's going to change your destiny. Something's going to change the world. Something that's going to make dark seem like light. Something that's going to make um, anger Feel like joy. So this is what he's saying. He's saying darkness will become light. Joy will replace despair. The enemy will be defeated. And that's the whole part of this thing. The enemy will be defeated. Not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians. The enemy. And the enemy is death. Okay, that's, that's the enemy. The enemy will be defeated all because a baby will be born in Bethlehem. And then he says this in verse 6. For, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are the first names given for Jesus in the Bible. Now, if, if you were here when we, when we talked about these names for God and we had this series you know, a while back called God Is and we talked about how the Bible uses all these names for God that describe his character and his provision in our life. It's not God's name. It's just a name given to describe who he is and what he will be for us. The same is true with what we see here in Isaiah. Jesus didn't get a new name. His name is Jesus. That didn't change. But Isaiah gives us these names for Jesus that describe his character, that describe his provision, that describe who he will be for us and to us. In other words, he says a child will be born, a son will be given, and the Bible's going to have all kinds of names. But here's one name you need to remember, that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. That's what he is. Now, the easy thing to go is, well, what does that mean? If you're thinking that, that's cool, because that's what we're going to talk about for the next little bit. What does it mean to be a wonderful counselor? So, two words. So, we're going to kind of look at these words separately, all right? So, let's look at the first one, all right? Wonderful is uh, defined as beyond anything we've ever seen. 
Uh, that's what it means. It's beyond what we can see. So extraordinary that it's beyond explanation. It's beyond understanding that it's outside the bounds of human expectations. In other words, we can't describe it. We can't imagine it. We can't fathom it. We don't know what it's like. We don't know what it is. We don't know how. If someone says, well, what does it mean that Jesus is wonderful? We can say a bunch of words and they really don't mean any. We just really can't say enough words. Right. So let's see if we can strip this down for you. The Hebrew word for wonderful is the word Pele. Now, if you're old enough right now and you know anything in the world about soccer, you're going, Pele, that name sounds familiar. Not the dude that kicks the ball with his foot. Not that guy. But the word Pele in Hebrew means supernatural. And so when we see the word wonderful, what the... What was translated is supernatural, and that Jesus is our supernatural counselor. Supernatural changes the perspective of wonderful. So let's kind of go through this, okay? So consider this, that his birth, everything about Jesus is supernatural. Think about this. His birth, supernatural. Bible says wonderful, supernatural. That's what it is. So think about this. You know, we, we, we talk about the birth of Jesus, and we go, you know, Laid in a feeding trough, you know, wrapped in rags, animals. I'm assuming there's animals in the barn because most barns have animals, you know, or have them around somewhere. Or as I like it, the, away in manger, the untold story of the birth of Jesus because it tells us all the, all the stuff that was going on around him. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of how I like to think of it. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't the first and only baby born in Bethlehem that night. He wasn't. You really think there weren't other babies born in Bethlehem? You think there weren't other babies that had ever been so poor, uh, born into the world, that they had to lay in a feeding trough? What made his birth stand out is not that he was, had no place to stay, that he was born in a manger. That is for the rest of us. That's so we can understand how he relates to us at every level. He was God in flesh and blood who came into this world as a baby, just like us. That's what makes his birth wonderful or supernatural. God in flesh and blood entered the world the same way we do. Not with a parade, not with an army, not with the angels leading him, just a baby. Born in Bethlehem. His birth is wonderful, it's supernatural. But beyond that, his name, his name, the name of Jesus is supernatural, it's wonderful. Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess at the name of Jesus. Acts 3 says, The miracles were done by the, in the early church in the name of Jesus. Salvation comes, the Bible says, by no other name but the name of Jesus. Jesus said, Whatever you ask for in my name, it'll be given to you. His name is, and, and so Isaiah says it this way, his name is power to the believer, a threat to government, and a guarantee of prayer, and a menace to the devil. That's how Isaiah describes the name given to Jesus. His name is above all names. His name is special. Once again, if, if you study history, that's not an uncommon name in that culture. Until you connect it with his birth, 
God in flesh and blood. It means Jesus saves. I mean, the angel was very clear to Joseph, right? When he showed up and, and Joseph was trying to figure out what he was going to do, he says, boy's name is Jesus. It means God saves. That's what he's going to do. That's why he's going to be in the saving business. Take care of that boy. And he did. His name is wonderful. But beyond that, his life, his life was wonderful, supernatural. His enemies tried to find any reason to accuse him. They spent the good, most part of three years trying to find, dig up a little dirt. And they failed every time. It got to the point where the only thing they could do when they, wanted, when they tried him was lie and break, and break their own laws because they just hated him so much. Jesus, but think about his life. Jesus never, ever, ever, ever did anything selfish. I probably did five selfish things yesterday. A couple this morning. Jesus never, ever had an impure thought. I watched the Georgia game yesterday. I can't even begin to tell you that's not true. Never did he think anything that was sinful or inappropriate. Now just let that settle for just a second. Never did anything selfish, never did anything wrong, never committed a sin, never thought of anything wrong. Not one time, not one time, did he do anything that was outside of God's plan for him? Not one time. Everything he did was with purpose and on purpose. He's in the desert. Satan says, well, if you're really who you say you are, turn a rock into bread. Now, here's the deal. Satan knew who he was. He didn't need to prove anything to him. And he could have said, all right, here you go. Check this out. I'm not going to eat it, but psh, can you do that? But he didn't. You know why? Because that had been selfish. He wept over Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem would be the place he would die. He wept over his persecutors. He wept over his killers. He asked God to forgive everybody involved in his death. Man, his life was supernatural. It wasn't just wonderful, it was supernatural. But beyond that, his teachings were supernatural. They were, they were wonderful. Jesus taught with authority. I mean, he taught with authority. I mean, he freaked out the, establish, the religious establishment because they came along and they had these really complicated teachings and rules and rituals and do's and don'ts. And Jesus just came along and he took all this complicated stuff and he made it so simple that anybody could get it. Not only did he make it so simple that anybody could get it, Jesus made it so simple that people could understand, hey, that could be my story. And then one day people would figure out, hey, that is my story. His story is my story. He just made it simple. Not because he was trying to be cool, but because the truth is, it's simple. He did a lot of miracles, really cool stuff. Walked on water, only one other person's ever done that, and he didn't walk long. Raised the dead. When he was being, when, when he was kind of on the run, so to speak, 
uh, because it was at the, towards the end and, and people were after him and Jesus knew he had to kind of get out of town. He stopped because he met this, this blind guy and he, and he stopped the healing. That's who he was. Fed thousands with a, with a Happy Meal. That's a little stretch, but go with me, all right? I mean, he, he did amazing things. He was supernatural. And so it's easy to look at Jesus and go and think about all the great things he did. Think about who he was, God in flesh and blood, and, and all this power he had and all this authority he had and go, man, that sounds like a really un- unapproachable guy. Which is where the counselor comes into play. If he were just wonderful, we would go, well, that's pretty unapproachable. But wonderful counselor changes things. Counselor, it's an interesting thing. A counselor is someone that you go to when you're in trouble, right? Or you go to when you're trying to work through something. You go to when you need to talk about something. Someone who can advise you on what you, not maybe what you have to do, but maybe kind of get you to see the things you need to do. A good counselor never tells you what you have to do or what you should do, but they kind of point you in the right direction of what you should do. Um, someone who's been where you've been. Someone who's walked a half a mile in your shoes. Maybe 10 miles in your shoes. Someone who's been where you are. Someone who knows what it feels like to be hurt. Someone who feels, knows what it feels like to go through Christmas with a first. Whatever that first is. That's what Jesus is to us. It's why He was born the way that he was. It's why he was God in flesh and blood, came to the world as a baby. It's why he had no place to lay his head. It's, it's why he, his first bed was a feeding trough. His first uh, blanket were rags. It's why the shepherds came to see him, not the kings, not the, the aristocrats, not the well-to-do. Because Jesus is a lot of things, and one thing he is absolutely is relatable to what we're going through, to where we are. The writer of Hebrews talks about it this way. He says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he's faced all the same testings, yet we do, yet did not sin. Verse 16, this is the cool part. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So when I tell you that no matter what we're going through, no matter what Christmas is, Christmas is not about who's not here. Christmas is not about who may not be here. Christmas is not about my personal situation. Christmas is about the arrival of Jesus into the world, promised in a dark time in the history of the world. When Isaiah said, someone's coming who's worth waiting for, who will change your life. He's going to change the world. That's what Christmas is all about. Joy in a hostile world. Peace in the middle of a storm. He makes us where we are because He loves us where we are. Comforts us where we are. He's God. He's man. 
wrap your head around that for a little while. And he absolutely understands going through. And if ever you find yourself going, you don't know what I feel like, remember this, Jesus absolutely does. Because here's what we learn in Scripture. When our hearts break, His heartbreak is greater. When we're in pain, His pain is greater. When we're struggling, He just wants to be there with us. And that's the thing about Christmas. And I think that's where things get lost sometimes. Because sometimes, this is kind of where we kind of land. Some people do. I just wish I had somebody. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, Christmas was great, and, and family was great, and people start to disappear in your life, and it's just not the same. I feel so alone at Christmas. The truth is, you just feel like you're alone. But you never are. So I want to tell you a little story. You've heard this story before. Uh, it's an old, old story. Uh, I remember hearing it 100 years ago, it seems like. About this old couple out on a Sunday afternoon drive, right? And so they're just driving along, and the wife is sitting on the other side of the, of the car, and they're just trucking out. And, and the wife turns to her husband and says, you know, you're, you know, I used to sit right beside me when we drove down the road, and he just pats the seat. And he, I'm sure, I'm sure she safely unbuckles her seatbelt and slides over and puts the middle one on because nobody would ride through town without their seatbelt on, right? And so, um, and so then they're riding along and it's all good. Then she pops him on the leg and says, you know, I remember. I remember when we used to drive around when we first were, when we were young and in love and you used to put your arm around me. So he slid his arm up around her. Driving, right? And then she got really angry. She slapped him on the leg again, and she goes, why don't you do this anymore? What happened? I mean, you used to treat, you used to love me. You were always here for me. You always sat right beside me in the car. What changed? And he just smiled as he's driving along and says, I'm not the one who slid across the car. And I think sometimes that's how it is with Jesus at Christmas. We feel like we're all alone. We feel like we don't have anybody. We get all irritated with Jesus because we don't feel like he's there for us. And the truth is, he could just say, I'm not the one who slid across the car. I am where I've always been. I am immovable. If you feel separated from me, it's not because I left you. It's because you slid over a little further and a little further, and a little further. Here's the good news. With Jesus, there's always hope. And that's what this Christmas season is about, the arrival of hope in our world. And if you find yourself, and you're kind of that person, you've slid across the seat, he invites you to start sliding back. He doesn't want you to face your first alone. He doesn't want you driving around looking at the Christmas lights alone. He doesn't want you to experience the joys of your kids and your grandkids alone. He wants to do it with you. It's why he came into the world. For unto us a child is born, a son will be given, and he will change the world.
can change our world. Father, we are... Um, it's so easy during this season to get so caught up in the craziness of the season. The, I mean, there's a lot going on. Family gatherings, kicking in the high gear, seeing Christmas programs. We get so busy, and then at some point in time, we stop. And for some of us, we think about the, the realities. Might be our last Christmas with. This is our first Christmas without. We feel like you've abandoned us. And the truth is, you would never, ever do that. You were always, always where we left you. This Christmas season, Lord, may we look forward to the celebration of the arrival of the King of Kings into our world. For those who are dealing with some really difficult things, Father, we pray that you will comfort them. You will put people in their life to remind them that there is a joy that comes with Christmas that's different from any other time of the year. We thank you for this season. We thank you for the celebration of the arrival of Jesus. We ask these things in his name.